like from a bird's eye perspective, it's like not having separate repositories, right? Where like every team works in isolation, but rather having one single repository where multiple teams might work inside the same repository. Hello, welcome to the DevTools FM podcast. This is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. I'm Andrew, and this is my co-host, Justin. Hey, everyone. Our guest today is Yuri Stromflaner. Yuri is the Director of Developer Experience at Narwhal and is joining us today to talk about NX. Yuri, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, hi. Uh, yeah, as you said, like my name is Yuri. Uh, I'm calling in from Northern Italy. I've been with Narwhal already for like a good two years and uh, most lately, I'm taking over the, the role of director of developer experience. So I can fully focus on like making an X and stuff better and then interact more with the community, which I'm really enjoying. That's awesome. What is the what is the role of director of developer experience? Like what is what does your day to day look like? Uh, I guess it's like it, it probably depends a lot from company to company. We are around 30 people, but like still the whole DevRel sector is pretty small. So it's me plus a lot of engineers have been traditionally at now also been doing that as the second part, like talking at conference because they just enjoy it. We have a lot of Google developer experts on our team. So it's part of their kind of thing they do even outside of work, right? So I guess like the, the whole thing is it's, it's fully focusing on developer relations, making sure uh, like feeding in the development feedback from the community back into to our development teams but it's also like being very near to the actual engineering specifically for an x so i also basically go through like check out new features take part on like feature brainstorming sessions to make sure like that also from the developer experience part of view things are kind of in line with what i know from the community right so it's all around that plus content production also creating even integrations in an X and stuff like that. So pretty interesting so far. That's cool. Well, one more question before we start talking about NX. So Norwal is, is kind of a, like part of it's like developing this open source tooling, but part of it's also like a consultancy. So how does, how does the business work? Yeah, exactly. Like basically NX is our, if you want 20% project. So we mostly like do 80% of consulting and 20% uh, work on open source, which is NX, NX Cloud. And, and also people can choose to do more like docs and content production, that, that side of area. Uh, but yeah, it, right now, at least it's mostly focused on like those 20, 30% of our time. We're kind of trying to balance that out, like trying to slowly invert it even, right? So focusing more and more on NX. But the whole like consulting business for us is also important specifically to kind of be there in the real world scenarios, right? Because like a lot of what an X is today is because like we work at clients, we see the issues that come up there, especially with larger scale repositories and stuff like that. And so then we kind of feed that back into an X and that's hugely valuable. So there will always be some consulting part of an X and now in general, but yeah, right now that that is a big chunk of where like we obviously get the money because an X is basically free, right? So it's open source. You can just start using it. That's that's super interesting. So like NX was literally born out of a customer need of managing these large monorepos company to company. Yeah, basically, um, our co-founders Jeff Cross and Victor Safkin, they have been at the Angular team inside Google, uh, and so basically when they like quit their job there and like thought about founding their own company and helping businesses outside of Google, uh, they obviously wanted to take some of the things that they learned inside Google, like for instance, how to handle like large-scale monorepos with them, right? And kind of implement that in a way that it is really approachable also for like 
everyone outside. Because Google is kind of known for their big, big monorepo, right? With uh, Blaze, which is their internal tool, which is known as Bazel Outside. Uh, but it's really a complex set of tools that they use. They can afford it because like, they're huge. And so their goal was kind of to take that with them, the kind of philosophy, and try to give that into the open source world and basically kick it off from there. So yeah, it, it, it kind of started from there. It started very small, initially actually as an extension to the Angular CLI even, because Angular has already kind of a CLI, which is very minimal. So it started as an extension to that, and then they, they quickly figured like there's really like the need for, for something like standalone, right? And so from there, it really evolved. And nowadays, it's basically a standalone development tool that you can use. I, I suspect that's kind of where the naming came from since Angular uses like the NG, so NX kind of goes in line with that <laughs> yeah. whole naming scheme. <laughs> it's kind of not 10 times developer. Like we, we have the joke, it's not like 10 times developer, it's like NX developer, right? So <laughs> you get even more productive when you use NX. <laughs> <laughs> so if we could take a step back and just talk about NX from uh, just a broad term. So if people are loosely familiar with monorepos or maybe not even super familiar, um, how would you go about explaining like what NX is and what problem it seeks to solve in their project? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like there are like two things here, right? Like there's one thing is like, what is an X and like, what does it do and how can it help also in the case of monorepos? And then there's more the generic approach of like, what is a monorepo even, right? And why might you need it, right? So um, at that point, like I might even plug, like we have a page that we created like monorepo.tools, which is kind of an approach where we try to explain it like from someone that is like, what is monorepos? It's like they got pretty like popular recently in the JavaScript ecosystem in general, right? Although they have been around for quite a while. We try to break it down. What are the tools that are available and like why you might need it? But like from a bird's eye perspective, it's like not having separate repositories, right? Where like every team works in isolation, but rather having one single repository where multiple teams might work inside the same repository, right? So that's kind of the monorepo approach. And there are different like, things why you might need that, right? Like, like we could really probably talk the entire hour about that, but it's most of the times it is around like code sharing, right? Making like allowing for easier refactorings across the code base and lowering the friction in general for the code sharing approach in general. Obviously, if you have multiple repositories, like you need to have like CI set up for every repository. You need to have a publishing process in place and obviously like then deal with version conflicts as you share code. And specifically, as we have seen from our own experience within bigger and larger enterprises, what often happens is like they don't even have a registry. They copy and paste code between like different repositories, which is like super bad, right? But like that's how it goes, right? Because you, you have to ship features quickly. And so sometimes like those workarounds are being made. So monorepos can help mitigate that a bit. And to, to your second question, like what is an X and how can it help in those scenarios? An X has been designed from the ground up to kind of support that 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 like scenario of a monorepo, even at a very large scale, right? Uh, although specifically in the last years, we made some quite huge improvements in the sense of that you can even use it in a very, very small environment. For instance, we have even startups that just like start with one application, right? You start quickly prototyping it and X has a couple of features that allow you to go quickly as you as you create your application with those generators. So and what, what happens then is like you start with a single app, just use some of the CLI features from an X, and then out of a sudden like you get like, well, we might create a second app there because like it's it's handy, like we want to deploy it separately. And out of a sudden you have a two, three apps, maybe even a mobile app in there, and you have a small monorepo, right? Uh, so it doesn't always need to be huge, right? Although we definitely have like clients that have like 
200 plus project in the same NX monorepo. So it can really scale, but like we really cover kind of the, the thing where you can quickly start with a small thing, uh, benefit from those code sharing features at a small scale. And then as you need to scale up, because like your startup maybe grows, right? We, we can stay with you basically along that way. So that's more or less like uh, where NX can help out. For our listeners that might be familiar with a tool like Lerna, how does NX differ from like those tools that they might've used before? What What makes it special? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. So Learner is more at a higher level. So it allows you to have different packages within also same monorepo and same workspace. And it basically helps you with processes like the installation of NPM packages, like those kind of more high level management stuff, even with the publishing process, right? Where it just like would go in, uh, increment version numbers, create packages that are dependent on each other, stuff like that. Uh, and NX is like does the same thing, but it also goes a bit deeper. So it has like other structures in place that might help you. For instance, things like a dependency graph, right? Where where you can see like which project within the same monorepo depends on which other projects. From our perspective, a monorepo, like obviously it can be also where you just have a couple projects in there that are not talking to each other at all, right? So you just benefit basically maybe from the CI setup. Uh, whatnot. But usually what you have is you have some separate sections in a monorepo, but then you have a lot of the libraries and stuff that interact with each other. So there are dependencies between them. And so that's then when you need more support than just something that handles you the builds across those libraries or NPM installs, right? So you need something that like gives you an idea, like what are my dependencies look like? Even shield you from, I don't want to have dependence between those libs because like they should never depend on each other. So stuff like that. Uh, and then obviously there's the whole part that Learner doesn't have in this specific case, for instance, is the, the part about generators and integration with various tools that we think are really good and like considered best practice if you want to be productive in, in front-end development, such as, I don't know, Cypress, Jest, linting setups, right? So configuring those is, can be quite cumbersome. There are some people that like it, right? And it's definitely fun to play around sometimes like with a WebEx config or setting up types of config that it works well in, in a monorepo setup. But as we all know, most of the times, that's not really what you're paid for, right? So you rather should ship features. And so that's where NX can jump in and like we battle test basically those integrations and make sure they work uh, well together in, in that specific setup. So so, uh, so NX comes with things that like just instantiate all these dev tools and like hook them up in a best practices sort of way? Yeah, exactly. So that is mostly basically that generating part of NX, right? So it, NX is basically constructed in a modular fashion. So there's a core part, which has things like the whole dependency graph analysis and which understands like how your workspace is shaped, which obviously is super helpful then for doing optimizations at the larger scale, right? So improving build speeds, understanding what changed in a certain PR or whatever, right? So to basically be faster. And then on top of those, there are plugins, which we can Add, right, so there can be plugins for Angular, for for React, for Next.js, and stuff like that. And we we support some core plugins, right? We are just that many people, so we cannot support really everything of it. And luckily, there is a huge community that that also provides plugins, like from the community itself, so you can build your own. But so basically, that's kind of the idea that there's the core, and then there are plugins on top. And all of those plugins then come with things like generators that you can then use, for instance, to like quickly generate an application setup, right? And that application setup is already pre-configured to work well with TypeScript, to work well with Jest, with ESLint, with Prettier, and those things, even Storybook, right? Uh, and, and then you can continue even, like it's not just the initial setup, which I think is, is very, very cool. It's not just that you can get started quickly, but also as you develop, 
it, it helps you, right? So you can generate components, routes, libraries. Like as you go, you can even uh, like benefit from those generators to move them on quickly. And it's all, all, not always just uh, like moving quickly, but also the consistency behind it, right? Like what we see, for instance, like when we work with bigger organizations, it's like they want to have the library set up in a certain way. They want to have something in the readme that always set like is structured in a certain way, right? Uh, the components should look like this. Libraries itself, the build setup should, should have this structure, right? And so what an X also allows you is also to customize those, right? So you can extend from those, create your own specific generators that match your organiza- organizational structure. And so that helps with consistency, especially as you grow the monorepo, right? It might not be in that important if you're small, but definitely if you grow. One of the things that I find challenging with generators sometimes is just discoverability. Like people don't necessarily always know when they come into a project that, hey, yeah, this is how, like if you're creating a new component, we would like to do it through this, you know, an X generate component as opposed to, you know, copying and pasting the component that you saw somewhere and then like changing it to to what you want to do. So this is probably not necessarily an NX specific thing, but, but how do you go about like socializing the fact that that you know yeah these generators are yeah. here and that they can do all this stuff yeah that, that's a very good point and that's something we have been working quite a lot to make sure like people discover them more easily for instance just recently we have updated our docs actually just like a couple of days ago where basically if you go to annex.dev then you can do like slash packages slash and then whatever package you're using like react angular uh, next.js whatever right and that will basically give you a list where you also have already like the, the generators that are there, you can then jump in and explore them in more detail. So that helps a lot with discoverability. Um, though the main thing which I usually use and suggest people is to install, for instance, NX console, right? Like that is something we, we develop it now as part of like NX. It's an, an IDE integration with Visual Studio Code. There are actually also some extensions developed by the community uh, for WebStorm. There are actually two plugins that do similar things. Uh, and so that's the best way to explore, right? Because like you just like op- install it on VS Code, open it up, and that already has a generate command that opens up like basically a dropdown, and then you can search for that like components route. You can really explore uh, what is possible to do there. And as you click in, it opens up a form, and so it's much more visual way of exploring things, right? And so for in- for beginners, that's what I suggest because like you just go and explore those forms, you try them out, like see what happens. Uh, and then once you're kind of more familiar with it, because like behind the scenes, it just executes a command, right? So you can even like, there's even an icon, you can copy and paste the command. So next time you're obviously much quicker, right? You just like paste the command in console, change a couple of things, and then you go, right? Uh, but for discoverability, that is, that's an awesome product. That's a really interesting approach to it. Uh, I've seen the idea floated on Twitter a lot where it's like, oh, why don't you just make a GUI for your CLI? And like, uh, you can, it's a lot more inviting, but like a GUI for a CLI might not really make sense. And it's like, where do you deploy that? Do you run a local dev server? There's like all these weird yeah, questions exactly. you have to answer as a, as a VS code extension though, that makes a, a lot of sense. Like it's yeah. already a thing that's, that's configuring code based things. Why not your CLI? So that's, that's a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. We even had it at some point, like the, I remember still like the very, very first versions. I wasn't even at novel. They have been as a standalone product, but as you say, like it doesn't feel right because like then what do you do? Like you launch a product as a GUI and then you have to select the workspace, which feels kind of odd. Right. And so in fact, like it didn't get a lot of adoption, like, but once like we integrated it as an extension and you are already there, right? So the extension sees that this is an X workspace and it, it's not even just like the, the generators, which we mentioned that it gives you, but it, it even helps you like jump around configuration 
application files because like use all those fancy code features like code lands and stuff like that to actually augment the workspace for you right and help you navigate it uh so yeah that, that's super useful that's awesome uh so you mentioned things about uh builds configuration react angular does nx help you with those builds because like i built a tool called design system cli where it's like it's almost like an NX sphere design system and all the mm-hmm. tools are like pre-configured and included. And we do like CJ, uh, common JS and ESM builds and like bundles. Does NX take care of any of that for you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically with those plugins that you can like install on top of NX, like let's say the React one or Angular one, like they just come with the generators, but also with what we call executors. And executors basically are kind of task executors, right? So they might be like for building, for linting, for testing. And, and so they come with the plugin. Now you can obviously create your own. You can even just like have it fall back to an NPM script if you have a package JSON in that project that works as well. So you can even start very lightweight. But usually what people do is like they leverage those build and executors because they kind of abstract away a bit like the underlying configuration, right? So let's say for instance, like the React uh, executor that is being used, I think that's coming from now a web package. Like that uses Webpack behind the scenes, at least right now. So we might change it at some point. Like if we see like there's something more useful, right? We can even change it under the hood for you without you having to do anything, right? And so that's that's one of the benefits, right? And you just configure via a couple of options. Uh, and obviously there are possibilities to to customize it further, right? Like there you can even hook in like your partial Webpack config and like get the original config, mess around with it and give it back into an X, then obviously there are people that need that customizability, but a lot just go with the options that come with it. Uh, and so behind the scenes, we try then obviously to set that build up in a best practice way to make sure like the output is like what you would expect, right? And we can cover a lot of different use cases from there. And so it's the, the thing I mentioned also before is like the, the, the thing about the upgrading part, right? So if we see like, like maybe in the future, like let's use ES build, right? Rather than Webpack, that would totally be possible, right? So NX comes with uh, such a the mechanism that's called migrations. And so whenever you, you jump from one version to the next, you just, you don't just go into the next workspace, although if you could, and just the updated versions, right? But rather there's a specific command that run, you run basically NX migrate latest. And that will basically migrate you from version that you're currently on to the next one in terms of NX itself, but also like if you use then React plugin, for instance, also React plugin and the React version that comes with it, right? And so in that way, for instance, we were able like, I think even half a year ago by now, like migrate a lot of our React folks from Webpack 4 to Webpack 5 without them having to do quite a lot of things, right? Because it happens behind the scenes. So we update the Webpack configs. We even migrate the code itself. So configuration files and your source files, if like there are things that need to change, like imports and stuff. So this is a really powerful mechanism. And again, like this comes a bit like from the enterprise environment that we feed back into NX because like in enterprise, like they want to be up to date, right? Because it's not just for like leveraging the latest features of let's say like latest React version or Webpack version, but sometimes it's also about the security issues, right? So you might need to patches and stuff like that. So you should keep up. But at the same time, we all know it's kind of hard, right? Like to justify again, those things like migrating tools. And uh, so those are, those are super helpful in terms of migrations. So, I mean, it almost sounds like a database migration. For the plugins, are you having to write, like, so you release a new version and you actually have to write, like, okay, you know, execute this code mod or, like, make this change yeah. or run this template or something like that? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the plugin is set up in a way that it allows you to easily specify those migrations, but obviously you have to write them, right? So some of the times it's even just like moving along versions, so really just updating package JSON versions. So we see, for instance, I don't know, that version of Webpack works well with that version of React, works well with that version of Storybook, which happens to also be a plugin of an X, right? So we make sure that as you move along, those tools integrate as they should, right, without breaking you. Um, but then obviously you have the case, like in the, in the case of, uh, you know, Storybook, we had to really also change how the stories are being written because like Storybooks themselves changed it, right, at some point. And so that's when you then dive deeper, you deal with ASTs, manipulations and, and stuff like that, and you have to write those, right? Now, an X provides you the infrastructure of identifying from which version to go, you have to go to the, which version you want to go and lists you all those migrations and executes those. But like you you write the code, right? So there's an entry point of a file that gives you some information about the context, such as you as a developer, as a plugin author, you know, okay, like this is what I'm going to migrate to. And then there is a lot of utilities that already NX provides like via its dev kit for like inserting stuff in certain positions of an NX workspace, right? Dealing with, with NX workspace configuration files. Like there's helpers for that. So it's not that you have to write it from scratch every time. Um, but yeah, depending on the type of migration, it might be more complex or or more of a simple one. Uh, but yeah, you as a, an author usually write those. You don't have to, but yeah, you usually do. So if you're doing a complex migration and you have to do like an AST transform or something, um, do y'all have like tools that you recommend? Is it like set up or is it just like, Hey, you know, use JS code shift or Babel or something like, is that, does that, does the developer sort of bring that to NX or does NX provide sort of a framework for taking care of those more complex? Yeah, no, no. NX basically provides you already with that framework. So NX comes with a, a dev kit, which is at novel slash dev kit. And so that already comes with a lot of the utilities you would want to have uh, to do those migrations, right? To write those. What we also, what we often happen to use is things like uh, there's a package called TS Query, uh, which is really helpful for like querying the, the AST for TypeScript files, like stuff like that. You just bring those in uh, as you need them. Like, and we, uh, an X core team members, uh, use it for our plugins just because it's so convenient, right? Um, but like the infrastructure itself of how those migrations get executed and how certain manipulations need to be done, those are those are already there, right? You can leverage those and, and build on top of those. In fact, for plugin authors, I often recommend just look at like what the core NX plugins do and how they migrate the files, right? They migrate from different versions. Like that's the best way to learn, right? Um, because like then you, you, a lot of the scenarios have already been covered, right? Like inserting like sort of webback configs or changing those stuff, stuff like that is already there. So you just could re can really go and copy paste and adapt it for your own needs. So we've talked about uh, like some of like the day to day features that you might use with NX, but one of the things the the marketing page really calls out is that it's super fast at doing a lot of things. So what makes NX so fast, and what is it doing to make things fast? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's obviously like, especially as you scale, you, you want to have that that feature, right? And that's also uh, that's also a lot of the, like one of the big pain points I've heard from folks using Learner in the past that you can start very easily, very quickly, but as you grow, it becomes really a pain because then your PRs and CI runs like four hours, right? And that obviously is then, again, like productivity drain on, on the developer side because like you're not able to merge into features, right? So, and... Um, that has been there from the very beginning of NX to, to basically help with those speed improvements. And so there are different stages, which I usually call them. Like there's, 
like what NX already had for a very long time is those affected commands. So we've talked about the dependency graph that NX builds behind the scenes, right? So it kind of knows which product depends on which. And so whenever you, you execute, like, like add a feature and then create a PR and push it up, you can actually run an NX affected, let's say, affected colon test. And so it would like query the PR, see the comments based like on some, some base branch, which usually is master or main, basically do a diff, see which projects got touched, and then with the dependency graph, figure out like what needs to be retested, for instance, right? And so that already cuts off a whole chunk of your like structure. If you have a bigger monorepo, because like if you just change a couple of files, right, a couple of projects, there's no need to run the test for everything, right? And so that works for testing, for linting, for building. Like you can really even build, like create your own targets, and those would also just automatically work with those affected commands. They, you could just hook them in. So I, I usually define that as the first step. So you always should do that, right? Like that, that's basically the basis on where you start. The most recently what we introduced like last year more or less is uh, local computation caching. And local computation caching is basically just the, the concept of, okay, like you run that command with those flags, those environment variables, and it includes those source files. Let's compute a hash out of those store it in a local cache in node modules folder wherever you specify. And so next time you come around and execute the same command, we won't execute it again, right? So what might happen is like you have executed that already, you run an NX affected command on CI, right? Or even on a local machine. That happens to include that our project that you executed previously. So well, that project would be pulled out of the cache, right? So now you have the affected command kind of cutting off a whole lot of the branch but like even from those like five projects maybe that enter that branch of those affected projects just two of them would be rebuilt because the other half have already been cached so there's an additional kind of improvement and speed improvement there and the cool part about like the whole caching approach is that it's really completely transparent so you as a developer like we print out at the end of the command that this has been pulled out of the cache or we print something like well out of those five projects two have been pulled out of the cache but you don't notice at all. Like if we wouldn't print it out, apart from the speed improvement, because it's basically instant, you wouldn't notice. Because like we restore basically the, the the whole console lock that usually gets printed out, let's say by Jess, for instance, right? With all the colors and everything in the same order you would usually have, plus the potential artifacts. Let's say in a build output, you have like the disk files that get produced. Those would be just pulled out as well, right? And so that's what, what I see, like that's the second step. And in fact, by now, like we introduced that one and a half years ago and like by now that's the default. So you don't even have to enable that. That That's just like it happens locally, it caches the commands, right? Because it just makes sense. Uh, we even at some point, we had like affected tests and then like we had a dash dash only failed. It's like what would happen is like you run affected tests and then like maybe five failed. Well, let me just rerun those, right? So you do like dash dash only failed. But like once we had the computation cache, well, we just like, let's drop that flag because like the cache would just, pull out everything it's as fast as you would run all of them again right so that, that's a pretty pretty cool cool feature i feel and, and then the next step is obviously then distribute it right because like the, the computation case is just local for your own workspace and so then if you want to really share it with your team members and specifically also with ci because like ci is usually the pain point right then you share it right and that's where like nx cloud comes in and that's where you basically can export that cache that local computation cache, that folder is simply being synced with the cloud-based storage and then synced to other developer machines, depending on which ones basically attached to that same storage. Uh, and so that is hugely beneficial, specifically in CI, as I mentioned, right? Interesting. So this is a kind of a case where if like you built something locally um, and maybe you were the first person on your team to, to build 
something and it hasn't changed for anybody else, then they would like pull down the cache remotely of exactly. that thing that you built. Exactly. That's that's exactly. pretty magic. Yeah, exactly. So you, you wouldn't have to, like even your, your coworker, you wouldn't have to re-execute it, right? So, and specifically, as I mentioned in CI, what happens, like you, you might have a whole set of PRs, right? In and in a, usually a kind of PR train, a merge train that gets into to main or master. And so PRs before you might execute the same commands of the same set of source files, right? Granted, you didn't touch them, right? But they, as I mentioned before, they might re-enter and you affect the tree, but like you didn't really touch them, right? They just happen to be dependencies. But then the PRs before you just execute the builds on those or tests on those, you would benefit, right? Uh, so those are like some of the main like advantages of that. Uh, and then the next step, if you want, like in that that set of that scale, basically, so basically affected, then you have the caching. And then on top of that is the whole distributed task execution. That's the kind of the, the top feature we have right now. Uh, because like, that is another our pain point you often see in CI. Does that uh, same like graph extend to node modules? So say like you updated React, does it then run all affected packages that depend on React and then so on and so forth? Yeah, so in the, the, the dependency graph also has the node modules in there. Uh, and that, that's, yeah, that's useful specifically for the affected part, uh, but also in some scenarios like for even like, like, for instance, preventing the inclusion of certain packages in certain libraries. Let's say you have some libraries that you don't want have them import uh, the React package, for instance, because they should be pure, they should be just TypeScript-based, whatever, right? Because you don't want like a developer accidentally pull that in. Now, the dependency graph has that information, right? And so we have, for instance, a lint rule that prevents you to do that. Or another use case is like, um, which is pretty an interesting one, is like if you have, for instance, I don't know, a, a node-based app in your Annex workspace, or even now with Remix, right? You want to actually run it on a server side. Now, if you're in a monorepo, in a monorepo that is structured with an X, you have just one package JSON to very root, right? So there's a single version policy across the entire monorepo, which is pretty important as well. And so what happens if you build the Remix app or the Node app, you can actually generate a package JSON based on what that project imports. So it can generate your dependencies automatically, right? So if you happen to pull in a certain library, it will just also add that to your dependencies of package JSON because then if you then set it up in a Docker container, you would have those that are needed on the server side of that node product to run. So the whole dependency graph in general is like, it, it is initially has been used for exploring, right? And then doing those affected commands, but there's a, a whole lot of interesting features that you can then build on top of it once you have that knowledge, right? Because you can directly access it from your plugin, you can extend it. So it's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, Drawing those boundaries in application structure is, is is pretty tough sometimes. So it's it's nice to have tools to assist with that. Um, you, you mentioned there's a single package.json uh, in the root and that it's versioned uh, uniformly. So how does publishing actually work with NX? So if you have a single package.json, it means you have ostensibly like in your package.json you define like what the module name should be and all that stuff so so somehow for these sub projects they have to there's a dynamic package.json that's generated for them that like defines what dependencies that they have and and then takes care of all the publishing and everything so can you just talk about how that process works a little bit yeah sure so uh, the the single package JSON at the, the root level is basically for dependencies between in, inside your workspace inside your annex monorepo, and so what it means is simply that uh, if you use React in a monorepo, you will have one version of React, right? Or if you use Angular and, and so on, like you have one single version, and that is different to that 
to some other tools that like are also learner for instance right where like every package has this package json potentially can have even different versions right so obviously if you have a single version you need to coordinate right like if if you want to upgrade you upgrade all the things that are in a monorepo that might be more work initially sometimes right but it is also kind of beneficial especially with those migrations because like usually the team or the person that migrates then also knows like what needs to be fixed because like usually it's just dependent on well in react 18 or whatever they change this thing and so if that error type comes up like i already know like you need to fix this right so in that migration process it's much easier for the person to just to go through right obviously it needs more coordination right but the goal is like to be better compatible even between those libraries because otherwise you might end up in weird situations where one app imports a library that is used that it should be used like with React 18 while another one uses a previous version, right? So there might be some weird behaviors then at runtime when you deploy. But that is really just for the dependence in your workspace. Now, the libraries usually inside an Annex workspace, they don't need to be published, right? So you can directly depend off them, right? Because there's a main package, like a main TS config base at the root of the, the whole workspace that links in those libraries. And so you can really just import them. So what it means is then the library really just pulls in the source and bundles it into the, the application, sorry, pulls in the source of the library and bundles it in and you deploy it with it. You can, however, which is your cure use case, use publishable libraries. So you might have a couple of those where you want to have them on NPM or even within your organization. It's usually not the case that like a huge organization have one NX monorepo, but they have like couple of them, right? And so some pieces you might even want to publish because you want to reuse them even outside other uh, like areas where they don't use an X, for instance. Right? So just traditionally publish them to NPM, internal registry, stuff like that. So in that case, you just generate a publishable library and that would have a package JSON. Now, that wouldn't mean that that single library would have its own node modules folder, but that would have a package JSON that maybe define a couple of scripts that are needed in there, right? Or the version that you want to publish then, right? Like things like that. And the whole generation of the dependencies, well, that happens still. Like if, if you want, for instance, to have a published React library, right? So that would also take care in the build process of that library to also add, add basic dependencies that the library imports into that package JSON dynamically. If you want, like you could disable that behavior even, but usually you want to have that, right? And so still in the end, what you end up with is in this folder, you end up with a library with this package JSON with this version in there, right? And so you can just do an NPM publish as you're usually accustomed to. Now that said, like NX usually just goes to the pub to the bundling step, to so the build step. So we don't have something in there in NX that does the publishing itself. So like I don't know, update the versions based on semantic versioning or doing change log generation or I don't know, push up to npm registries. What usually happens is like you create your custom scripts in an NX workspace that does that. Right, uh, which you can then again hook into those NX targets and then use affected publish, for instance, so that only those packages change will be published. So that totally works. So you can hook in your own tool chain. Now we're currently exploring that area. So we want to add some support for publishing, but the thing we stayed out of it is because it's very, very custom, right? So our building is pretty, like you can pretty standardize that, like in terms of like what output you want to produce, how you want to build certain things in an optimal way. While publishing is a bit more custom, like, do you want to use conventional comments? Like, do you want me to increase like the version number? Like the thing is like, we're currently exploring like how far do we want to go and help developers and where do we want to like stay away and say like, okay, we go until, I don't know, incremented the version number, right? If you want to have like change log generation based on conventional comments, well, that's something you add on top of it, right? So th that's something we're currently uh, right now exploring uh, because we definitely would also kind of 
want to add that in because like, then we really would close the circle, right? So we really can set up a new project, create a couple of publishable libraries, especially for open source projects, have the publishing process well in there, not just the build and testing, right? And so you can really have the whole experience and be very quick at actually publishing packages to NPM. Yeah, the the last time I looked at NX, uh, I came to the conclusion that NX is really like catered towards more like a collection, a monorepo that's a collection of apps rather than like a traditional learn a monorepo where it's just like you have like 12 node packages that might be interdependent. You publish them and people consume them. For context, uh, I actually do run a tool that does monorepo publishing called Auto uh, that kind of solves all cool. these problems. Yeah. Uh, so and it, it is a very hard, <laughs> it is a hard problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if, if, if you want to, uh, feel feel free to reach out. Uh, it, it is definitely not a simple problem. So yeah. yeah. The, the way yeah, that the- NX handles package JSONs is very interesting. Like when I la- looked last, it was a lot of like manual configuration to like define the dependencies between things. But it seems like that's become a lot more automatic in the recent recent days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And also to your point, like in terms of like the apps and lips kind of structure, that is also something you can now choose. Like why initially you really had like, okay, you have apps and libraries and it was very much like targeted towards like app publishing, right? So that use case. Now you can actually, when you set up an an NX workspace, you can choose like the the core or open source uh, preset even. And there you would really have like just a packages folder with just a bunch of libraries in there, right? So it would be kind of the the same setup. So you can really kind of choose. And that's also one thing that we wanted to have is kind of more the flexibility of like, well, I don't need an app, right? So I just need packages because like I'm really in that open source scenario, right? Where I just want to have a bunch of like packages that happen to be in a small monorepo because like they just belong together, right? And then happen to set up a workflow that that allows me to publish them quickly. That's really cool, yeah. Uh, Something that we were dealing with at work is we have this app lib set up, right? And and it's traditionally an app, but there's a few packages that we would like to publish independently, like our our UIs, Mm -hmm. our UI lib or component library. Uh, But we don't want to do the traditional like mono repo setup because there's a lot of requirements that it instills on you about your like the structure of your application you know um so it it seems like maybe something like nx is is more suited to that use case is like oh well you're building an application but you want to just then publish some you know packages from that it's like it'd be a little bit easier to to yeah exactly like the use case we typically have is that um, like things like, I don't know, uh, the component design library of an organization, right? So the, the organization might have like the main monorepo where they develop their apps in, but then you have the component library that is being developed within that monorepo, right? But the, the component library is still kind of independent, right? Because there are small components reusable to a high degree. So those packages are then usually the case where they also want to package them up, publish them to an internal repository, such that like other folks that are outside of the monorepo can just benefit from it. Like then in the end, it just becomes like a React package, Angular package, whatever you happen to use, right? So yeah, that's totally a use case we often see, like it's not so rare. When we've been talking about monorepo, we've all kind of just been, in, at least me and Justin, have been thinking JavaScript monorepos. But does NX support more than JavaScript? Can you have a polyglot monorepo? Yeah, totally. So we, we happen to be mostly on the front end space. Uh, so because we, like the whole team started from Angular now in, Re- is in React, Next.js, Node, and that kind of stuff. So it's very monorepo heavy. But for instance, we have our internal monorepo where we use like uh, Java backends, Node backends within the same NX monorepo. So NX itself doesn't really care. A lot of the plugins that we provide happen to be 
JavaScript focused. But for instance, there are plugins from the community that, for instance, allow you to run .NET projects, Go projects, and, and other kind of things within the same NX monorepo. Because it doesn't really matter. NX, what it does, like at its core, is just figure out dependencies and execute those dependencies based on what changed, right? So that's what it does. It's basically a task runner, if you want, that comes with caching and that kind of thing. So you can benefit from that. Uh, and, but that's it, right? Then it really happens what plugin you happen to use. So if you have a plugin that supports Go or, or Java backends or .NET backends, whatever you happen to use, or, or Vue.js, right? You just plug it in and that's it. And then you can go for it. Uh, we recently, like we, we are currently trying to market it a bit more and create more content around it. But like we even allow nowadays to, to extend the dependency graph. So if you have, for instance, like Go, which has like its own dependency structure within like different Go libs, right? So how you follow from one lib to the other, you can even like parse it on your own, like create your own kind of dependency parts and plug that back into an X. And that way you have even like those dependency graphs integrated. So an X would even know how your Go structure looks like. So the functionalities are there. What we are currently trying to do is like kind of educate people, like teach them, produce material around it so that people see like the potential that are in there. But in X itself, it, it happens to be written in, in, in TypeScript, in JavaScript, but you can plug in like even a polyglot repository like if you want. So definitely. That's awesome. So we just got a few more questions left. Uh, one thing I'd like to go back and touch on, because I think it's a pretty cool idea, but we didn't talk about it much, was uh, NX's distributed task execution. Mm -hmm. Can you detail like what you might use that for and like what it's actually doing? Yeah, so um, that basically ties into the caching and defected execution, which we talked before. And it's it's solving the problem of when you have like um, multiple, like in, on CI friends, what you want to do is you want to parallelize as much as possible, right? But then what happens, like an exit is able to like with the dependency graph to, to see like which process you have. Now, if you have defected tests, for instance, which runs like, I don't know, 100 tests, right? Just tests that are being executed. What might happen is that some of those take longer, some are shorter, right? And so if you just balance and, and parallelize them like equally, like you will end up in a suboptimal situation where like all the others are kind of waiting in idle state, like those basically different processes, right? And so you have to wait until all of them are completed and then you go ahead, right? Then DT can solve you with that because like DT kind of learns how long certain process, certain tasks take or took in the past. And so it allows you to balance that out automatically. So you don't have to kind of care about like parallelizing stuff, right? And then charting like on CI, the different processes, but DT kind of takes them in. It knows the structure, it knows the dependencies, it knows how previous runs went because like they were went through that pipeline as well. And so it, it does basically parallelization splitting up, right? So it understands, okay, it doesn't make sense to split up those tests because they are pretty fast. So let me just group them into one kind of process like that runs like even sequentially within the same thing right? While the others are being parallelized out. And so what you end up like is a balanced run where all of the, the runs basically take more or less the same time, right? So it's basically an optimal use of your CPU time on CI. So that's kind of the, the idea. And our main design goal there was to, to be able to set up super easily. Because what we see, for instance, is like in, in companies, like the parallelization on CI, you need to kind of have some knowledge, right? You need to kind of know like how to do that in like GitHub, right? Or CircleCI or, or GitLab. Uh, and so you need to have nearly like a person dedicated to kind of take some time, think through that and kind of figure out like how this works best. Uh, and with DT, it's really just like a couple of flags setting on, starting basically the DT server, and that would then kind of pull in and, and do the parallelization. And again, like they are similar to the cache restoration where I mentioned before, we 
like restore the, the console logs in the same order, the output in the same order. With DD, it's the kind of same thing. So if you go then to like your circle CI and you look at the logs, they're at the same thing. Like if you execute them in one single run, right? So you can really see sequentially what happened. Uh, and that's something we, we really pay a lot of attention to, like, and which ties a bit into the whole developer experience part, right, of NX, where obviously we could just like phase back the result and say like, okay, this run happened to be in like that first process up there and that different kind of setup in a different uh, container. So go there and see the logs there, right? But rather what we want to do is like reassemble everything in the same order as you kind of pipe them in, such that like from a developer, especially for debugging purposes, it's super easy to spot and, and, and figure out like what happened, right? Which obviously needs a lot of work, right? Like there's that extra mile you have to do to go basically to make sure that the integration back in works. That's that's super cool. So like even, even awesome. like you don't even have to like set up sharding for like Jest. It's just like, oh, I, I got this. Exactly. 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 That's and and awesome. you can totally try it out. Like what we did, like for instance, uh, I think it was two months ago, like with NX Cloud. I was like, NX Cloud, uh, like uh, as a disclaimer, that is kind of our paid edition on top of NX, right? Our commercial edition, if you want. But then like uh, what we did is like two months ago, is we really opened it up such that it's basically free for everyone. Because like, we said like uh, everyone has 500 hours of such safe time on NX Cloud, which is basically more like a lot more than most like repositories use. Like unless you are like a super large company, but then you obviously most probably afford to pay for it, right? But like others are totally able to use it. And so with that, you have the distributed caching as well as the DT already integrated, right? So it's it's like, we wanted to really make it a no-brainer, just opt in. And then when you set up the NX workspace, just connect to NX Cloud and have the caching going, uh, even without you noticing a lot, right? So you can, can straight ahead benefit from it. I'm assuming that this is something that would have to be integrated in a plugin too, though, right? So for example, it seems like you like it would still need some idea of how to split up the test, you know, like if you're using Jess. But I mean, if you're using a Jess plugin, then I'm assuming that, you know, that knows everything about Jess anyway. And you can provide this capability of like exactly doing whatever. So if you were writing a new plugin for like VTest or something, you would like add this capability as well to like you know, pass the specific flags to make it split up or whatever. So really all you're thinking about as an NX consumer is like, here's the flags that I would pass to a plugin that's compa- compatible with this feature, right? Something like that? Yeah, no, not really. Like the, the actual, like the sharding, like the whole DT setup, for instance, that works out of the box. Because like, if you wrap it in like, even like either you package it up in a complete NX executor, which like the, the, the full-blown version, you have a plugin that you develop and that gets certain parameters in and like, you work with those and those are configuration based. So next is able to even read them, right? And even like the DT and NX Cloud setup is even to, to able to read it. Uh, what we also have, however, even if you execute node scripts, like you can like wrap them in a very simple executor, which we call run commands, which is really just like one line. You have a command colon and that invokes like node and then dot that the, the like dot dot slash and points like to your relative path of the file, right? But since this is also wrapped, and you have an output folder that is specified. NX knows, okay, this is the command that needs to be executed, right? This is the output it produces. So you can measure that, right? It can measure like how long it took, which then like used then as an information for the next runs and for the splitting. And it knows where like the output is be is there happening, right? So it can cache that and, and move it into the cache folder. So it's not like you can really wrap like even your own custom node tooling and, and whatever you have even locally in your workspace in those commands, it would just work out of the box. So it's not something where you need like as a plugin author, 
expose certain things to an X such that it knows how mm. to actually optimize it. It happens like, there's a black box, right? Okay. It has input parameters, flex, you execute that, that's the output, that's it. So it really looks from outside of it. Cool. Nice. That's awesome. That's really cool. Cool. So with that, I think we'll move on to tooltips. My first tooltip is about a feature in Vite. Uh, for those who don't know, Vite is a next-generation ESM build tool for building websites uh, that are really fast. Uh, I've been using it recently to build a storybook alternative because while I hold a special place in my heart for storybook, it is quite an old project and has a bit of baggage in the code from how we used to build things. And I think with all these great tools that we have today, you could build a better version of a storybook with a lot less overhead of all of those tools. And so to accomplish a lot of the things that I've had to be doing, uh, I have to code a lot of virtual modules. So you might ask yourself, what's a virtual module? So uh, instead of uh, generating code for say like all of the exports in a story, I can instead create a virtual module that uh, to the, the build system, to ES build, uh, it looks like a normal file. And I can say, hey, here's my virtual module. It's called at foo. And then uh, this uh, Vite plugin will return the content of that virtual file. So uh, if, you, if you were looking at the plugin, you literally return a string with uh, some exports and it's just straight up JavaScript. So uh, this this pattern is a little hard to wrap your head around at first, but for every every time I've tried to build a documentation generator, this is the way that I do it, is that uh, a virtual module in the build tool and it's a super powerful way to do things. So if, you, if you've never heard of that concept, I'd encourage you to go to their docs, check out what you can do with it and uh, maybe try to play around with it yourself. That's all. This this is a pretty important concept broadly. So I first like ran into this concept way back when I was working a lot in the Vue ecosystem. So Vue.js has a single file component. And out of that single file component, you know, it has this template. It's got the like actual JavaScript that it runs and it's got some styles. And it actually breaks those down into virtual modules. And back in, you know, especially like Webpack 3, Webpack 4 days, it was not super trivial necessarily to do that. You had to get kind of creative with how your plugin. So it's nice that they expose this first class API for this. It's good. Yeah. That, yeah, that was the cool part about it. It was super simple to set up. Like I just copy and pasted this little plugin function and I was off to the races. Whereas Webpack, you kind of have to figure out what hook you want to <laughs> tap and what part of the pipeline is best. And that yep. that's, that's a, a lot. Yep. So my first tool tip of the day is this project called YJS. Uh, YJS is a CRDT implementation. Um, essentially, if you need to do real-time editing, real-time collaborative editing of something, this project can help you out. Um, so if you want to have like a shared text field or something like that, um, then yeah, definitely check it out. Uh, CRDTs are, are non-trivial or operational transforms. If you're if you're taking a different approach, uh, it's it's a really hard space and it's a really hard space to do well. But uh, this project gives uh, a lot of good APIs and uh, yes, yeah, that's pretty nice. So definitely recommend checking it out if you need to do any real time editing stuff. Cool. 
You've mentioned CRDTs much more than once on this podcast, Justin. Are you building a real-time collaborative (laughs) editing piece of software, or are you just very interested in the space? I plead the fifth. Uh, (laughs) I'll talk about it when I have something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we already kind of talked about it like during the podcast. Which is the next console. Like, I wanted to plug it specifically because a lot of people don't know about it, and I feel like it's super powerful, especially obviously if you use an X. Uh, it integrates there and gives you like that discoverability aspect where if you're new, you don't know, like you can like visually explore what are the capabilities that you have there. Um, and so, yeah, definitely check it out. Like, uh, and if you're a WebSum user, as I mentioned, there are even some plugins there, like to community plugins uh, that, that do basically most of the same, right? Maintained by the community itself. It's really cool. It's such a it's a it's such a great concept. As Andrew was saying earlier, it's like a great way to have like a UI for a CLI is by doing it via a VS Code extension. It's, that's pretty smart. Very clever. Uh, this tool tip falls right in line with my last tool tip. Uh, so for my storybook alternative that I'm building, uh, one of the things I need to do is extract the stories from a file. So uh, there's a couple of ways I could go about that. I could just be real stupid. I could just use FS, re- read the file, <laughs> try to use some regexes to parse parse what exports are. But that's that's not going to work in the end. Like that's that's a, a, a bad solution. Uh, the next step, you might go to like the most popular tool that would do this for you. What you really want is an AST that you can then go, okay, let's go through the AST, get all the exports, and then we're off to the races. Uh, the leading choice for that right now would probably be Babel, but Babel, it's built on JavaScript and it's pretty slow. And I, my, uh, tools already built on Vite. So like the whole point of it is as fast as possible. And if I throw some Babel in there, it's going, it's eventually going to bog down the rest of the build speed. And I want like sub-second startups. So, uh, I went to the bleeding edge and went for SWC. <laughs> SWC is a Rust-based uh, compiler for the web. It's sort of like ESBuild, but the biggest difference between ESBuild and SWC is uh, SWC actually exposes the AST so you can do things like extracting those exports or even doing transformations. And since it's built on Rust, it's still really fast. So uh, it goes really well with Vite and this whole thing that I'm, I'm trying to build. And currently for like my little test storybook, it starts up in 250 milliseconds. So it's, it is really fast. And uh, I, I'm excited to, to finish building this on the weekends. Nice, 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 nice. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you come with. That'll be a little fun. Yeah, I wanted to say, like, I never approached, like, SWC, like, from the ASD perspective. Never, never approached that part. Like, we recently started using that in an X as well. Like, we have a new package that is, like, at novel JS, uh, which is really, like, we want to, like, we call it JS, which might be a bit, a bit misleading, but, like, we wanted to have, like, the best JavaScript packaging experience, but specifically for, for TypeScript, right? So it creates both of them. And there we have, like, both options. Like, you can use the SWC to compile your TypeScript and, or TSC, obviously, which would be, like, the, the default good way to go, right? And you can even switch back and forth, right? And, like, this, the speed aspect is, is really awesome, yeah. Absolutely. Like, it's super fast. Yeah, I was, I was looking at the AST, and they do have type information in there. So that's that's pretty interesting. I also use, use this to extract, like, JS doc comments yeah. from, from the AST. So cool things. 
Cool. I need to check that out. They're uh, they're working on a Rust based API too. So you know, yeah. if you ever want to do Rust based AST manipulation, then you yeah, they're probably going to break all my code. But but, but that's fine. I, I know a person who recently learned a lot of Rust. <laughs> he, he could probably help out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my my last tooltip of the day is this really, really interesting uh, project that I stumbled across. It's very much in line with my last tooltip. Um, it's called WebSocket Pi. Um, we'll, we'll include the link in the show notes. Uh, so WebSocket Pi, the idea behind this project is to be able to give you a real-time sort of multi-user application but without having to really think too much about the server or the server configuration. It's like you set up a standard server and then the client sort of manage all the connections and like uh, whatever you do. So so essentially, so long as you have the, the correct room name and the right version, then you're, you'll automatically connect and you can send messages. There's like a predefined format. But if you were looking for a really, really easy way to make like a game lobby, or a chat app or something like that, this would be a really interesting uh, sort of mechanism for, for that. Now, this is more of a hobbyist thing. If you're, if you're like communicating sensitive information or like security is a big thing, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe not this uh, because it does rely a lot on, uh, you know, clients uh, doing the configuration and setup. This is, this is really just to get started really easy, but if you're making a game or something, it'd be really interesting to check out. Yeah, my next, next. pick is uh, Obsidian. Like this is not really like programming related or, or dev tooling, but I've been using this recently. Like I've, I'm very interested in the, pay, in the space of like personal knowledge database and like how to keep notes and stuff. Especially, especially now that I've transitioned more like also in content production, like doing that much more actively. Uh, this is super helpful, and I feel like this. Is, I've I've tried different approaches, but this is the one that clicked most for me. Uh, in the sense of like how I build up my knowledge base and like how I con can connect nodes between them, like to approach it much more from a graph perspective, right? So like usually what happens is like, what, like the, the biggest fear is usually, okay, like I, I store my notes somewhere, right? How do I find it, right? So what you usually do is like you do create folder structures, but then like they're super rigid, right? Like then you start using tags, but like, yeah, what tag did I use last time, right? So in this case, what I usually, like what I figured is like, what I usually remember is context. I might not remember the name of someone, but I, I know I was on their show. I was I had, like talked to them at that, or they did that talk, right? So I find a talk and from there, I find a link to the name of the person, right? So in that kind of kind of thing, uh, it's really powerful. Uh, and I was even thinking about like exploring it more in the sense of like, partially even exporting it to like uh, your blog platform, right? Like to have something like a digital garden where you have like small notes, you push them up, like to not always just have like those big, large blog posts, right? But just rather extract them and like have some small notes connected in there. So it's really, really cool space. Also very, very big community behind it. So large forum and, and chat room that they have. Oh, yeah. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. J Justin, bring up hipstersmoothly.com. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, uh, yes, Yuri, it is very easy to export your Obsidian MD notebook to to a statically built site. And that's what this is. Click Digital <laughs> Garden nice. at the top. I need to check that out. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can check out the repo. They, they have their own solution that they sell, but it's yeah. it's pretty trivial to set this thing up yourself. Uh, me and Justin cool. are big uh, Obsidian people, or at least we were. Uh, yeah, Justin I, also created, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I use their paid solution so this my notes on yeah, the site yeah. is, is yeah. through their their posted solution which is pretty good i haven't nice. updated them in a while though nice 
you had uh, so one last one on here. That. Do you want to <laughs> share this after? Yeah, this is something I stumbled up recently, yeah. most recently. So uh, I'm not super deep into Wim. Like I, I started using, like as probably most developers, like like it's an on and off, like continuously, right? Like you jump into Wim and then like, yeah, it <laughs> doesn't work, so back out again. But like it did stick now for me, like at least for the last two years, mostly within Visual Studio Code, like those Vim, like there's a VS Code Vim plugin that you can add there. So to have more like Vim shortcuts, but still not a full Vim environment. And so internally now, like this Lunar Vim or LVim came up uh, and it's pretty cool. So I started exploring it a bit, but really just like since last week uh, for those quick things where you have are in your terminal and just want to kind of kick off, like open up a project, quickly explore it. Uh, it's really powerful. It's based on NeoVim. Uh, so it kind of sets you up already with a couple of mm-hmm. plugins that are uh, that get you started quickly, right? Like if you're not super deep into Vim, it's super nice to, to get started with that. Does this actually come with a, a GUI is, or is it just using NeoVim through the terminal, just like pre-configured? Yeah, it's kind of pre-configured. Like you, you spin it up from within your terminal and then you have already kind of tree structure set up, like uh, code syntax highlighting. It, it basically pre-installs some of the plugins for you as you open up files. So it's pretty pretty nice, yeah. But this is pretty short. Like I started exploring last week. I find it pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, definitely having more opinionated Vim setups is, is a good thing because uh, Vim, uh, there's a long history there and it could be very, uh, yeah. very hard to get into and get all your <laughs> configuration set up and everything. It's cool though. Okay. I think that about wraps it up for the episode. Uh, thanks co- for coming on, Yuri. Uh, it was cool to talk, you, to talk to you about NX. We talked about it in our first episode, and it was cool to take this deeper dive and learn more about it. Yeah, it feels like we come full circle. Uh, Yuri, <laughs> yeah, thanks for being on. It was, it was great. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> well, that's it for this week's episode of DevTools FM. Be sure to follow us on YouTube and wherever you consume your podcasts. Thanks for listening.